0: You're listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. I'm not sure when I felt a stronger fit between what's on my heart and what seems to be on your hearts. And I'm really deeply encouraged already by that and excited by that because my ministry has taken on a bit of a new direction in the last several years that God has placed Something on my heart that feels to me like a clearer burden than anything I've known in all my days of ministry. And I'm really uh, very burdened by it and very excited by it. And the privilege of sharing some of the things that are on my heart with folks that have similar things on theirs, especially with a group like this, is just a, a privilege that I don't know how to reduce to words. I feel very blessed to be here. I count this my joy. This vision that I want to be sharing with you in my three opportunities to chat with you Really began a couple of years ago, and I want to give you a little history of this, so you know where i 'm coming from. It began with the realization that the people that, in my judgment, were doing effective work with other folks, the people who were doing effective counseling, the people that had gone through our program that were effective in their work, were people who were not experts as the world defines experts, but they were people who, in fact, were doing what I believe the Bible means by eldering. When you watch an effective counselor, an effective psychotherapist, do his or her work, what you actually observe is that they're doing something which I believe comes closer to what the Bible calls shepherding than to what our culture calls professional treatments. Can you hear as I just begin that that kind of thinking is rather radical, at least in professional circles? I had the opportunity just a few months, well, about a year or so ago now. When was it when I was at CAPS? One of the reasons my wife is along is when I have no idea. And if I did say it was a couple of months ago, she will feel duty bound. March a year ago to let you know exactly when it was. Now, <laughs> can I ask you a question? Do you folks really care? when it was. I had a chance to speak to the Christian Association for Psychological Studies uh, some uh, period of time ago, and, um, and I was addressing 500 Christian psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, marriage family therapists, and I got up and I basically said that I don't think we have a profession. I got up and I basically said that I don't believe there's any such thing as an expert of the soul. That there are only elders of the soul. And as I taught that for about an hour in the opening plenary address, I did it with fear and trembling, as you might expect. And when I finished, I got a standing ovation. And I began to ask why, (laughs) because I didn't really expect that. And the answer that I got from a number of people was, we have had to maintain the facade that we know what we're doing when so often we don't. That hiding behind our degrees and hiding behind our licenses and hiding behind our training is something which has caused us to feel many times hypocritical, and we're hiding a profound sense of inadequacy as we deal with people's lives. I know that so often it's happened to me as I've been counseling with somebody professionally that the person will make note a problem, and I'll say to myself, you know, this is really complicated. I think this person really needs professional help. (laughs) And it takes me a moment to realize I'm a professional, and I really am not exactly sure what I'm doing. I uh, first begin to make some of this thinking known uh, about uh, in the last decade sometime when I had a chance to speak at Moody Founders Week and Joe Stoll who I um, had interacted with about some of these matters asked me if I would come and share with uh, with a group Moody Founders Week as well as with a group of pastors um, some of this thinking about the fact that our culture needs more elders than it needs more experts and I shared that at this Moody Founders Week a couple of years ago and I got more mail from that particular address than any address I've ever given in my life and one of the letters was from an elderly psychiatrist, a gentleman who was 70 years old, and his comment was, Dr. Crabb, in what you said, you are committing professional suicide. And then he added, and it's about time. <laughs> it's about time that we understand that there are realities in the human soul that the psychologist, the psychiatrist, the psychotherapist does not really understand, but that the gospel addresses and intends to address adequately through mature, godly men and women. It's about time, this psychiatrist suggested, and I couldn't agree more, it's about time that the Christian community understand that there is a power within the individual members of the body of Christ that when released can change lives very profoundly. It's about time that we came to realize that even when we feel terribly inadequate as somebody is sitting in front of us, even when we really don't know what to do, that a large part of our inadequacy is because we've bought a cultural lie. A large part of the fact that we feel inadequate is because we assume that there are those who know exactly what to do and don't need the wisdom of the Scripture and the leading of the Spirit to move into people's lives profoundly and deeply. Let me define for you very simply, just to get things started tonight, let me define for you very simply what I think a shepherd is an elder shepherd. I like that phrase that Roy has coined or somebody has coined. I like it very much the elder shepherd. To put it very, very simply, and just to give us a starting point for thinking about what I want to share with you tonight, a simple definition of the elder shepherd would be this, one who, above everything else, dispenses grace into the deepest part of another soul. One who, above everything else, dispenses grace into the deepest parts of another soul. What I want to do tonight in my first opportunity to chat with you is just to give you a broad overview of My thinking and where I'm coming from, a little bit about my journey, a little bit about the influences that have formed my thinking that have taken me away from seeing myself primarily as a clinical psychologist who practices psychotherapy and who wants to see myself much more in the role of an elder shepherd, believing there's great more power, a great deal more power attached to that particular biblical model than there is to what I've done professionally for so many years. Let me illustrate what I'm talking about. Some of you know the name Brennan Manning, and you've read some of his books. Rather profound writer in spiritual life. Brennan's a friend of mine. And about um, four or five years ago, Brennan and I had the opportunity to be together someplace, and Brennan told me a story. He told me that he had a man that, as is common in his tradition, is called a spiritual director, a term that evangelicals and the Protestant tradition are using more and more. But he had a man in his life that he dubbed a spiritual director, and he met with him periodically. And he told me this, that every time he met with his spiritual director, they would go to the West Coast, uh, California, and they'd meet at a particular point on the beach, and uh, they had a little ritual where Brennan would park his car at a particular spot, and he would uh, walk up the beach to meet the other older gentleman who lived up here someplace, and he would walk down to this trysting point. And uh, the way it always happened, Brennan said to me four or five years ago, was that as soon as Brennan came into sight of the older man, the older man, when he saw Brennan for the first time in some months, would literally jump up and down. There's Brennan. When Brennan told me that four or five years ago, I kind of chuckled to myself. I thought that was kind of silly. And then I had to explain why, last fall, when I was with Brennan again, and I was going through a particularly tough thing in my own life, and I was struggling and wanting someone to talk to me, someone that I could trust with some deep, hard parts of my life, that I found myself, when I was having a cup of coffee with Brennan, just a 10-15 minute quick interchange at a conference where our paths were passing rather rapidly, I found myself impulsively, with no premeditation, no plan to do so, blurting out, Brennan, I really want to talk with you about something. Whatever this thing is you call spiritual direction, would you do it to me? And Brennan very graciously said, yes, of course. When I walked away from that interchange, and we arranged some months later to get together, when I walked away from that interchange, I found myself wondering, why, why did I do that? There's a number of people in my life that I deeply respect. Why did I, why did I impulsively blurt out to Brennan, that I wanted him to chat with me and I wanted to bear certain parts of my soul to him. As I pondered that, one of the occupational hazards of being a psychologist, nothing can go unanalyzed. (laughs) As I pondered that, that memory returned to me of Brennan telling me that somebody had jumped up and down when they saw him. And then another memory returned. My wife and I were at CBA, the Christian Booksellers Conference, a year or two ago. And as we came out of the elevator into a very crowded lobby where there were several hundred people, I looked over and there was Brennan. And if you know Brennan, he has just very thick, wavy white hair. He's spotable from a distance. And I saw Brennan across the sea of people. And this is I was turning to Rachel to say there's Brennan. Brennan happened to turn and notice me across the group. And what did he do? You jumped up and down. And I remember that did something. When's the last time somebody has squealed with the light at your presence? Or to put it far more profoundly, when's the last time somebody jumped up and down when they saw you at your worst? What does it mean to be a dispenser of grace into the deepest parts of the soul? When I met with Brennan several months ago, we sat together for a several-hour and chat, and I made known some very difficult things in my life. And in the course of making known some difficult things and said some things to him that made known to him that there were some real ugly parts to me that I tend to keep hidden, as we all do. And as I made that known to him, Brendan began to cry. And I kind of, you know, you notice these things, and I said, why, why are you crying? And um, he said, Larry, I'm just so drawn to Christ because of your life. Well, that puzzled man. I just told him what a jerk I was. And I thought, if I'd have robbed a bank, would you be, really, would you be in heaven by now? I mean, what's the story here? And, and when I said to him, Brennan, I don't get it, he said these words to me, again with tears in his face. He said, Larry, I'm just so blessed by how disturbed you are by anything that interferes with your fellowship with Jesus. How did I leave that interchange? I left that interchange eldered. I left that interchange shepherded. I left that interchange longing more than before to walk with the Lord because I had been rebuked and confronted. There's a place for that, no. Because I had been shepherded by a man who knew what it meant to dispense grace into the deepest parts of my aching soul. Probably the most profound experience that I believe that I've had, one of the most profound experiences, certainly ranks in the top two or three, that I've had that I think might illustrate the direction I want to go with you in these few days as I have opportunity to chat there's a situation that, um, that developed with our son about nine years ago. And I want to tell you this story because it will give you a feel for the fact that I believe that there is a power inside of every one of us in this room. There's the life of Christ within us. The Holy Spirit is present in our midst, in our being. And somehow when the energy of Christ is released out of us, Paul talks about in Colossians 1:29 that he proclaims Christ, then he says, and I do it with the energy of Christ which so powerfully works in me. When's the last time you've been able to say that? When's the last time you've been able to say as you've been talking to a couple whose marriage is about to split that the energy of Christ was powerfully working in you? When's the last time you've been able to say to somebody who is just torn by certain difficult decisions in his life and is feeling so distant from God and is getting very despairing and depressed about that as I was chatting with a friend just yesterday in that category, when's the last time you were able to say that the energy of Christ somehow came out of me? You see, an elder shepherd is somebody who has learned something about what it means to release that which is deepest within him on behalf of somebody else. He's dispensing grace the deepest part of somebody else's soul. Well, let me tell you the closest I've come, I think, to experiencing some of that took place with our son about nine years ago when I was away in a seminar. Some of you have been to our week-long seminars that we used to do, these marathon things. And it was uh, Thursday night. I just finished teaching. I finished the lecture at 9 o'clock, and our habit at that time was to go out and get a bite to eat before retiring, and my associate Dan said to me, no, we're not going to go out to eat. We're going to go to the room. And I said, no, we're going to go out to eat. He said, no, we're going to go to the room. And he was forceful about it, so we went to the room. We sat down, and Dan said um, three sentences. Rachel called. Kep, our son. cap has been kicked out of Taylor University. She wants you to call. Three sentences. Three knife thrusts into my heart. Taylor University, you know that school, Indiana? Chuck Colson said, send your kids to Taylor. It's 50 miles from the nearest sin. that's not true (laughs) our son was expelled for legitimate reasons had I been the dean I'd have expelled him as well I didn't know what to do how do you shepherd your own kid the shepherding part of the fathering role what does it mean to shepherd a younger person when their life is falling apart what does it mean to have the energy of Christ flowing through you When I heard the news from Dan, I made phone calls, of course, to Rachel immediately. I called my son, called the airlines, and arranged for a flight the next afternoon, the first flight that I could get out, that I had to give the lecture the next morning. And I gave it. The lecture was on parenting. It was a great joy to give that with passion and power. And I drove home, or I flew home, and um, the next day after giving the lecture, I met with my wife, and uh, we embraced, we cried. And all the way home... I remember thinking, well, what do you think when somebody you love, a child particularly, is in great trouble? What goes to your mind? Isn't the first thing memories? When they were little? They won the Bible memory contest in Sunday school. And the devotions that you had with them as you tucked them in bed at night. and They just smiled. And when they were five, they said, Daddy, I want to trust Jesus. You started going back to all those things. Well, that's what I did as I flew home and then drove the hour and a half down to Taylor University. And I reflected back in the last five years where our son's rebellion had been developing and mounting in some very significant ways for five years of real heartache for Rachel and me, and uh, those years of heartache were handled very poorly by me in lots of ways. One of the ways was I really took it out on my wife. And she said to me at one point in the course of this difficult time, she said, Larry, I feel like you blame me for giving birth to him. How would you shepherd me if that were going on right now? That's not going on right now. Suppose it were. And I said, can I meet with you for breakfast tomorrow morning? Would you feel the energy of Christ just throbbing in you, looking forward to for the opportunity? Or would there be a feeling of, what do I do with this? I and mean, when you don't know what to do, what do most Christians do? Quickly pray, quickly give a Bible verse, quickly give advice. They don't move into people's lives, typically, when you feel inadequate. Well, we were struggling during those years and struggling rather profoundly with a son who was rebelling and. One of the things that I was doing was blaming my wife, but I think in a very real way I was blaming God because one of the major things I was saying to God was, God, I tried to be the very best father I could. Couldn't you have written a little more clearly on the subject in your book? If you would have told me exactly what to do that I haven't yet done, I would have done it. And I thought back to all the efforts that I made to raise our children properly and how when each of our two, we have two sons, when each of our sons was born, that like all of you who have children, you committed them to Christ from the very day that you knew that your wife was pregnant or that you were pregnant. You committed your children to Christ. And you vowed to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You did all you knew to do. And I, I did all that just like most of you. I mean, I probably went further than some of you. Do you know how we had family devotions? I purchased an overhead projector for family devotions. Laughter I mean, is that godly or what? <laughs> we had Old Testament survey, New Testament survey. By the time my kids were six, they knew what the word propitiation meant. And I remember just thinking if I can get the Word of God into them, then everything will be solved. There'll be no possibility of significant pain. And I can, for me, and I can recall as I would pray with them every evening and put them to bed from the time they were little, one of my biggest prayers reflected one of my deepest fears. My biggest prayer was, Lord, preserve them from serious sin. God, I'll make a bargain with you. I'll do such and such and here's your responsibility. Do you have it? Are you paying attention? And then when he didn't seem to be, I turned on him in some very significant ways and as I flew home, I just was reciting all the all the ways I had felt during these five years of rebellion and all the struggles that I had felt with our son and, um, and I remember thinking how hard I had tried, I had done this, I had done that, spanked them and gone to their ball games and put them to bed at night and given them bass when they were little and, and did so many things and did teach them the scriptures and did have an overhead projector. That's not just a story, that's true. And as I remember doing all those things, there was something in me at this point that came to grips with the fact that maybe there's a difference between demanding godliness and arousing Godliness. Maybe there's a difference between following a procedure that's designed with a guarantee implicit to achieve certain results. Maybe rather than demanding, there's an opportunity to invite. Maybe there's something about the quality of my life that's supposed to do something. What did the passage we just read in 1 Peter 5 be an example to the flock? You heard the story, perhaps. Let me digress for just a minute. You know the Desert Fathers in the 4th century, there were a group of men who decided they wanted to seek God in a way they never had before, and they left the city and literally went to the desert to learn to know God more deeply with a plan to return to the city to make Christ known. And the story is told, perhaps apocryphal, of a younger gentleman who decided he wanted to join the Desert Fathers after they had become somewhat established and known. And so he left the city... And went to the desert and searched out the best known of the desert fathers and said to this elder wise gentleman, said, Sir, tell me, what is the secret of influencing your culture for Christ? And the older gentleman paused for a minute, not because he didn't know the answer, but he wasn't sure if the younger person could hear. And what he said were these words. The secret to winning someone else to Christ or maturing someone else in Christ is to never answer a question unless the quality of your life has provoked someone to ask it. That goes along with Jerry's comment. I know the answer. No one's asking the questions, do you see? There's got to be some mood of asking myself, had my son looked at my life and had there been something inside of him that said, I don't get what you have. I don't understand why it's there. Dad, I'm listening as opposed to that. He was rebelling. Why? Do I take all the blame? No, I don't. Do I believe every case of child's rebellion is a parent's fault? No, I don't believe that. But I do believe that in my particular case, there was something about the quality of my life that had aroused very little curiosity in my son. And as I drove the trip from Warsaw, Indiana, where we were living, to Taylor University in Upland about an hour and a half down, I remember driving that trip and thinking to myself, Lord, I've, I've tried everything I know. I've, I've done all the stuff that parents do when their kids are teenagers and they're frustrated. You know, if you're going to live under my house, you've got to live by my rules or else, you know, and all those sort of... I went through all that. We had our terrible times of frustration and difficulty. And all the way down, I was saying, Lord, I've tried everything I know and nothing has worked. And I just remember saying to the Lord, I felt like he was sitting in the passenger seat with me. I said, Lord... Nothing's going to change my child but a, but a taste of you. Could you give him that through me? Maybe in a more powerful way than you ever have before? That's when I believe, and forgive this language which is not always familiar or comfortable to me, but that's when I believe a miracle occurred. Because when I met my son, the miracle was this. When I saw my son after being kicked out of Taylor University, my wife and I were in the parents' cabinet, I had been the spiritual enrichment speaker the week before, the year before, my textbooks were used in their psychology department. My oldest son goes to Taylor and gets kicked out. That was tough, for a lot of prideful reasons. And when I met my son after the, he, was, he was within a day or two of having been expelled, and I, when I saw him for the first time after that particular horrible event, the miracle was this. There wasn't a trace of anger within me. I became a dispenser of grace. And what I said to my son were literally these words. I said, very simply, nothing profound about the words, because, let me tell you, effective soul care has almost, not not entirely, but almost nothing to do with technique and has far more to do with the energy beneath whatever words you say. This she was not, let me give you ten skills on how to be an elder shepherd. Copy them down and make sure you do it. That isn't it. And my words to my son are terribly unimportant, but the spirit in which they were said, I think, meant everything. My words to my son were very simply these. How can I help? That's all I said. I just finished a book a few, uh, actually a few days ago, and my publishers uh, suggested I include that story in the beginning of the book. So I did, obviously with my son's permission, his wife's permission, and I sent him a copy of this a few months ago. And I said, "Kepp, um, you're giving me permission to write about this publicly, to talk about it publicly. I wouldn't do it otherwise, of course, but I want you to read the story that I tell." With all the details that you might remember differently than me, he called back. After reading the chapter that I sent him where his story was told, and he said, well, Dad, there's this one little thing that if you want to be totally accurate, I've got to correct what you said in the book. You said that your first words to me were, how can I, well, the, the, the way I put it was, I want to help. Those were the words that I put in the book. And Kep said, that's not what you said. Kep said your words were, how can I help? That was nine years earlier and he hadn't forgotten the specific words. Why? Because the words mattered so much? No but it made an incredible impact on him. I said to him, Kev, is it accurate? Can I say in the book what I believe is true, do you believe is true as well, that it was during that time that you came back to Christ? And he said, oh yeah, he said, but first I came back to you. What does it mean to be a, an elder shepherd? What does it mean to form a relationship where technique isn't the point, where energy is everything because we're so consumed with the life of Christ that somehow that's what comes out and makes the difference in somebody else's life? What I would like to do with you is introduce um, my subject a little more completely by giving you three conclusions that I've reached that underlie all the direction that I want to go as I think about this matter of an elder shepherd. Three conclusions that I've reached now that i have um, not nearly as old as the appropriate age for this group. I'm just 52. Um, but when I turned 52 years ago, two and a half years ago, I realized that I really hadn't had, when I went through the required season of uh, reflection, I realized that at age 50, I really hadn't undergone a dream-shattering, life wrecking emotionally-ruining uh, midlife crisis. And I really felt a little unfashionable. And so I prayed about it. And God was faithful. And the midlife crisis that I've undergone is one that has led me to three conclusions. And I want to share what they are. And the underlie something about the vision that I have for what it means to be a, the kind of man that I long to become as the years go by, the kind of man that maybe with the energy of Christ could actually touch other people's lives. You know, I'm just getting a little taste of that here and there. Uh, a couple that I um, was, was talking with uh, for several several chats um, when I was a psychologist. I called them sessions. Now I call them chats. And um, a couple that called up that I knew and they said, our marriage is tough. Could we just chat with us for a bit? And I agreed to. And we were chatting for a number of times, and then we had to, to break off the, the, uh, the times for a little while. And I called him again a couple of days ago, and I said, um, let's, "Let's resume our, our, our talking." And I was on the phone. I said to the guy, "Tell me, tell me how are things? Things worse, better, same? What's going on?" And he says, Th- "Frankly, things are a lot better." And, and I said, "I said, why? What, what, do you, what do you attribute the betterness to?" And, and he said, "You know, it, it, it's really simple. And this is a counseling student. It's, it's really simple." He said, "I think we're getting better because in our very few times with you." we really felt like you believed in us? Folks, can we take the obvious and make it profound? can we take the obvious ideas of what it means to actually believe that god might be in work might be at work in somebody's life and can we make that profound as opposed to simplistic and say well that's what that's what encouragers do but real helpers get into far more sophisticated kind of things can we begin to realize that when simple ideas are used to stay away from complexity they become simplistic and useless but when simple ideas survive complexity and come out the other side they become powerful and profound i think i'm getting a little taste of what it means to maybe share a few things with the energy of Christ, just a little tiny taste, and it's whetted my appetite for a whole lot more. And I believe, as I'm sure all of you do, that if that's going to happen more and more, it's going to require the continual work of the Lord in our life, in many cases, through hard times. Another digression, just for a moment. Um, Moses, at age 120, was quite a man, right? The Bible says that. End of the Deuteronomy, age 120, quite a guy. When do you suppose the modern Christian would have been more attracted to Moses? At age 40 or at age 80? At age 40, what was Moses like? Full of confidence? Pretty well connected? Figured he was the man for the job and he could arrange it. God's timing wasn't crucial to him, he could arrange for things. He looked this way and that and went about and handled something thinking he was going to deliver God's people at that particular point. He was a man full of abilities. He was powerful in speech and action. He had a great background. He was full of talents. He was a natural leader. And at that point in his life, I think most of us would have said, now there's a man who's got it. At age 80, what was he like? I, I, I don't know if I can even talk. Send somebody else. Is it maybe necessary to go through the 80-year-old sphere before you get to 120? Anybody jump from 40 to 120 or is there... 40 years in the desert before the power of God is releasable. And maybe is that one of the reasons why the word elder does have some implications of age. It isn't just the notion of an official title in a church thing. It really is something attached to age having gone through certain experiences. And I'm beginning to think that the Lord is moving in my life in certain ways and stripping me of certain things and taking me through some very deep waters that feel to me like very deep waters and uh, what, what I'm holding on to is the hope that maybe, maybe he's moving in a way that someday will release something powerful, the energy of Christ, so I can be this elder shepherd that I'm starting to dream about. Let me give you three conclusions that I've reached that underlie all of my thinking about this. And I want to give you these three conclusions because what I, what I want to do is not so much get real practical and specific. I just want to paint a broad-based vision and see if this resonates with where the Lord is leading you. First conclusion is this. Beneath what our culture calls psychological or personal problems is a soul crying out for what only spiritual community can provide. Let me say it again. Beneath what our culture calls psychological or personal or emotional problems, beneath what our culture calls psychological, emotional, personal problems is a soul Not a damaged psyche, but a disconnected soul, as a soul crying out for what only spiritual community can provide. I'm coming to the conclusion that to some degree, and I'm no enemy of the counseling movement, but to some degree the counseling movement has told all Christians who are not trained that they must, above everything else, know their limits. And we have in a lot of churches the idea of lay counseling, but the word lay in our culture has come to mean what? We know that the word laos means people of God, but what does lay come to mean in our culture? Hasn't it come to mean amateur? If you're a lay preacher, it doesn't mean you're an amateur preacher. If you're a lay counselor, you're an amateur counselor. Anybody want to see a lay physician? The idea of layman has come to culturally mean something less, something amateurish that really can't do much. And my concern is that we have actually bought into a way of thinking that might not be as correct as we naturally assume it is, that beneath all these things where people have problems, the marital problems, the, the anger they feel toward each other, the sexual addictions, the history of sexual abuse, the multiple personalities, and all these strange things that if you're in ministry long enough, you know that a lot of people in ministry with you suffer from. And some of you struggle with a lot of these things as well, just like I do. And we've somehow made the assumption, we've bought the idea, that is, about a hundred-year-old idea. began with Freud in 1895. We've bought the idea that beneath these problems, there is a specialized disorder that only the trained professional can handle. Folks, do you understand that modern psychotherapy literally, at its beginning only a hundred years ago, And do you agree with what Carl Jung once said when he put it this way? He said that modern psychotherapy has arisen to fill a void. Now listen carefully to this. Modern psychotherapy has arisen to fill a void that's been left by the Reformations ending the confessional. Because we no longer have an opportunity within community to meaningfully be transparent with somebody who can dispense grace. And the Reformation, the Reformers, very properly, most of us would agree, would assume that the confessional, as was practiced then by the Church, had lots of problems and wasn't right in all sorts of ways, and it needed to be dealt with. But do you know that Luther, in the middle of the Reformation, said, even though we've abolished all the errors of the confessional, we need to recover the biblicalness of the confessional. Luther himself said that. And Jung said that therapy has arisen so that people have some place to go where they can be absolutely transparent and honest and receive something about the ministry of grace in the middle of the transparency. See, if that's true, then what does it tell us? Maybe maybe the real problem beneath the surface is not something which we have become very comfortable in calling psychological disorder, which only a trained professional is able to handle. Maybe what's really going on beneath the surface is something very different. Maybe there's a soul crying out for connection. Maybe there's a soul crying out for what God designed you and I to experience in the first place. And maybe if we understand that we can begin to see that because we're Christians who now have been Christians for some number of years, and as we get older, and as we know more about the reality of Jesus in our life, and more about what it means to trust the Spirit of God within us, and more about his word that we studied, that maybe maybe we're the ones who are more qualified by character than others who are qualified by licensed competence to deal with the real fundamental issues that are going on in the human heart. Is that possible? You understand that really is a heretical kind of a thing in our culture. I was speaking three years ago, four years ago to the American Association of Christian Counselors, which I think is a very fine organization. I'm a part of that. And I was speaking to a a room of about 2,000 people and I was telling the story about a woman I was working with who was uh, struggling with multiple personality disorder. Now, right away, as I mentioned, MPD, you've all heard of it. Most of you probably have not worked with it because you would say, well, that's not what we do, no more than you would work with somebody who had a brain tumor. That's what you need a neurological surgeon for. Well, I was working with this young lady who had MPD. Now it's called something different. It's now called DID, Dissociative Dental Disorder, and they just keep changing the language to make sure that nobody ever feels competent but the more recently trained professionals. And... Um, and I was working with her, and I told the story to the 2,000 therapists who were gathered, and I said I'd been working with her for, I don't know, 8, 10 months, and we had developed a good relationship and thought through a lot of things together. But, but one day, as she came into my office, this is a bizarre story, and don't write down what I did as the proper technique, because there's no technique here. But as she came in my office one day, I remember I, I deeply loved this woman in a very, I think, brother-sister kind of a way, and cared about her younger than me. I almost felt like to her like I would feel toward a daughter. And she came in and she was just struggling and with passion that just began to arise out of me. I looked at her and without a harshness, the words will sound harsh to you, there was no harshness, I don't believe, to it. what I said to her was, you know, it's time for you to stop being so crazy. That was the day she fully integrated and hasn't gone back since. For eight years prior to that, she was having psychogenic seizures seizures that uh, uh, that neurological specialists had evaluated and had determined there was no epilepsy, there was no reason for her seizures, it was psychogenic, it was caused by internal psychological things. From that day, her seizure stopped. Is it possible that there's something in us which when it's released can actually make a difference in people's lives that's more profound than any of us can imagine? You see, if you make the assumption that what's really going on inside of people is not some specialized thing called a psychological disorder that can only be dealt with by an impersonal, distanced expert who knows how to manipulate, much like a surgeon with his impersonality, knows how to handle the scalpel very accurately, and we're all grateful for those. But maybe the model doesn't hold over here. Maybe there really are no such things as experts of the soul. Maybe the real issue is to become an elder of the soul. Let me illustrate what I'm talking about by a story from the life of Henry Nowen. I've mentioned him before. Um, I mentioned Brendan Manning before, and Henry Nowen is kind of in that tradition. Henry Nowen is a man that I'm sure most of you know by his writings. He died just uh, a number of months ago in his native country of Holland from a heart attack. And in one of his more recent books, Henry Nowen, a man I've never had the privilege of meeting, so I know him only through his books, Henry Nowen describes a situation in his experience where he went through a tremendous battle. And as I read the story of this, it occurred to me that there's a profound lesson in the way he talks about it. He talks about the fact that he went through, at age 56, uh, what he called the dark night of the soul. And it happened after he left Yale University, where he was involved, obviously, in a very prestigious university with a very prestigious position. And when he resigned from his position at Yale University, believing he was following the call of God to move to a handicapped community, a community for handicapped adults in Toronto, where he became the chaplain of a place called Daybreak or Larsh. And when he became the chaplain for this particular group, within months of joining this particular community as their pastor, as their shepherd, he fell into profound despair. Listen to how he puts it. After many years of life in universities where I never felt fully at home, I'd become a member of Larsh, a community of men and women with disabilities. I had been received with open arms, giving all the, given all the attention and affection I could ever hope for, and offered a safe and loving place to grow spiritually as well as emotionally. Everything seemed ideal, but precisely at that time I fell apart, as if I needed a safe place to hit bottom. Remember when I read that, my psychologist's mind went to work and I began to analyze what was going on. I began to figure out what kind of longings had been, had been somehow buried beneath the surface of his academic success and his prestige at Yale University, that when all that was taken from him began to emerge that left him feeling desperate and lonely. And I began to realize some things based on some other comments he had made. He said when he got to Larsh, he realized that all the things that had won him acclaim at Yale were no longer relevant at all to his current congregation. And as he said to this current congregation of handicapped adults, if he were to say, I've written best-selling books, they would not be impressed. They'd never read a book. And he said, you know, I had nothing to offer these people but my heart, and my heart was dead. And as I read that, I remember thinking to myself, I think I can figure this guy out. I can make a pretty good case study out of this. And I began to think as I observed that process within myself, I began to fantasize a little further, and I thought, suppose Nowen would have come to me for help. And I had all my carefully planned analyses, and I came up with all these insights that I can do, because I'm a professional, I have thought these things through so carefully. My feeling was, as I began to think about that, that I wonder if most of my training has really been used to reduce the mystery of people's lives into categories that I can understand so I can feel competent I wonder if there's something in me that's terrified simply to release the redeemed humanity within me on behalf of somebody else who's struggling and to dispense grace into the deepest part of somebody else's life and thereby to meaningfully elder shepherd. Is there something which keeps me from doing that? Do I hide behind a professional mask because I'm really afraid to do this? I don't know what that's all about. It's way too vulnerable, it's way too alive. And if I can stay at my technique professional level and hide behind my Dr. Crab persona, then I feel a whole lot safer. And I begin to think about that, and I begin to wonder. But if if, if now and had consulted a psychologist like myself, I wonder if I would have come up with a certain clinical diagnosis. Maybe I would turn to the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, the American Psychiatric Association, and determine that Nowen was somebody who really did have um, particular problems that could be diagnosed in a certain way that, that required certain kind of treatment. You see, when we feel helpless with people, the most common passion that we yield to at that point is the passion to explain, to end our sense of helplessness. And maybe it's the explanations that gets in the way of connection. Now when said these words in one of his books. He said, That, that was a time of extreme anguish during which I wondered whether, I would, whether I'd be able to hold on to my own life. Everything came crashing down, my self-esteem, my energy to love and work, my sense of being loved, my hope for healing, my trust in God, everything. Here I was, a writer about the spiritual life, known as someone who loves God and gives hope to people flat on the ground in total darkness. I experienced myself as a useless, unloved, and despicable person. Just when people were putting their arms around me, I saw the endless depth of my human misery and felt that there was nothing worth living for. All had become darkness. Within me there was one long scream coming from a place I didn't know existed, a place full of demons. That's the man that you're going to sit with. What does it mean to be an elder shepherd with him? How do you feel as you've scheduled a time to meet with Henry Nowen? What's your emotion? You know about these stories. And you're going to meet to help. What are the feelings that are coming up in you? Feelings like what? What do you feel as you think about meeting with him now and with those kind of problems? Do you feel joy? A chance to touch this guy's life? What do you feel? Inadequacy. Inadequacy. That's probably the most common one that we all feel, isn't it? Other words occur, occur to you besides inadequacy? I'm sure that's the commonest. Fear. Pardon? Identification. Yeah, there's something about the idea that we've been there. And you understand what professionalism sometimes does, it sometimes sometimes allows us to hide the identification and to hide behind our professional persona. We feel a certain inadequacy. We're not sure what to do as Henry Nowen makes himself known to us. Nowen goes on to tell the story that um, he didn't go to a typical therapist. The man he went to was an elder gentleman, a man who was his elder shepherd, if you will, a man named Per Thomas, who was one of the founders, along with Jean Vanier, of Daybreak Community, the handicapped community where now and was ministering, and he went to this elderly priest, a man named Per Thomas, and um, he made known his struggles. And Per Thomas, by the way, was a man who at that time was quite elderly, I'm not sure how old, I think he was in his middle, late 80s, and he was all but forgotten and not, not used at all in the right sense of the word being used. People weren't coming to this elderly gentleman. But now when, when he was in the depths of despair, his mind went to Per Thomas. Question, don't you want someone's mind to go to you? And the more natural way is whose name comes to your mind when you're in that situation. And that's where most of us feel profoundly lonely. But is it possible that I could live my life in such a way that when somebody hits the bottom like this, their mind goes to me? Well, Nouwen's mind went to Père Thomas, and this is how he describes, very briefly, in just a few sentences, his meeting with Père Thomas, his several meetings. He says this, During the most difficult period of my life, when I experienced great anguish and despair, he was there. Many times he pulled my head to his chest and prayed for me without words, but with a spirit-filled silence that dispelled my demons of despair and made me rise up from his embrace with new vitality. I read that and I say to myself, do I really want some older man to pull my head to his chest? Or am I being more comfortable seeing a therapist? Which seems to have more dignity? Uh, Doctor, I have a particular concern. I'd like to uh, consult you and see if I can get some help with this. Yeah, sit down. We'll chat. Or do I go to somebody and say, I'm dying. I don't know what to do. And I found myself saying, I think I'm not sure if I'd give anything, but I'd give almost anything if somebody, at my deepest moments, would pull my head to their their chest. And if you can feel that as I describe it, can you understand that maybe the calling is on you to pull somebody else's head to your chest? And what will that look like? I have several friends in my life that mean the world to me. Just about three or four weeks ago, a fellow who was kind of my Timothy, if I can say it without sounding terribly presumptuous, a younger fellow who's a pastor in Indiana, was out visiting Rachel and me, just a very good buddy. He's in his mid-30s. And he was visiting with us for a couple days. And one day, Rachel was out um, someplace, and we were home alone. And I was on the phone with a pastor friend of mine in Carolina who's another one of my special friends. And Kent, my buddy, was sitting out in the living room. And um, as I was talking to Jimmy, I was going through a really just just some struggles of some things. And and talking with Jimmy, my pastor friend in Carolina, I I just felt like here's a man who actually cares about me. And we began talking about the fact that when we're down, we share it with each other. And I said, Jim, you know what's nice? I feel like I can let you know when I'm struggling and you're not going to get tired of me. And he said, Larry, I think the reason I'm not going to get tired of you and you're not going to get tired of me is because we're not requiring each other to do what only God can do for the other. That's a heavy sentence. But as we chatted together, just the fact that he cared about me and I felt it and I was feeling some difficult things, I I, I hung up the phone and some emotions began to well up within me and and I just, this was just a couple weeks ago, I just fell apart and began to to cry. Kent's in the other room watching television. He heard the tears. What did he do? turned the television off, came into the room and put his arm around me and maybe not quite literally pulled my head to his chest, but it was mighty close. And after just about a half an hour of sitting there where he prayed, we talked, I shared my pain and he was there. I believe eldering me, shepherding me. Why? Because he heard me where I was and he dispensed grace in a powerful way. There was no mood of, let's fix you. There was no mood of, let's see where you're wrong. There's a place for that. But until the context of grace is established, that's just going to be judgment and moralism. In the context of grace, there's a place for rebuke. Don't misunderstand. But here's a man who didn't do those kinds of things, and as a result of having my younger disciple, Elder Shepherd me, I rose up from that couch where he simply held me for about ten minutes and prayed with me and cried with me. I rose up from that couch feeling very invigorated. About an hour later, as we were doing something else together, he turned to me and he began to cry, and he said, It just hurts my stomach to see you in pain. Folks, are you getting the feel that the elder shepherd is a person who pours something out of the character of Christ? And that's what makes the difference. Conclusion number one, I suggest to you, is that there's a psychological, that what we call psychological disorder maybe really isn't that at all. Maybe it's a soul that's hungry for what God designed the human being to experience, because God designed us to experience community, and the reason we know that is our Creator is Himself a community. Conclusion number one, I suggest to you, is that there's a psychological... that what we call psychological disorder, maybe really isn't that at all. Maybe it's a soul that's hungry for what God designed the human being to experience, because God designed us to experience community, and the reason we know that is our Creator is Himself a community. And he's built us in, a, in, in his image. Second conclusion, very briefly, and I'm going to de- deal these last two very quickly, and then we're going to close. Conclusion number two, when community, whether it's church community, navigator community, whatever, when community fails to provide true connection, we tend to turn to culturally sanctioned experts to solve our problems. When community fails to provide true connection, true shepherding, true eldering, When community fails to provide true connection, we tend to turn to culturally sanctioned experts to solve our problems. The American Psychiatric Association, their most recent edition of psychiatric diagnoses, lists 379 different ways to be mentally ill. And what they're saying, obviously, by their numbering 379 ways, is if you're struggling with any one of these, nobody can help you but a trained professional. Nobody can help you properly but a trained professional. This is our domain of expertise. In other words, untrained Christian realized you don't have much to offer if these are any of the problems. And to understand that the addition just before the one I have just mentioned had a hundred fewer disorders. What's the trend? The trend, as I see it, is to effectively put the Christian community out of meaningful business. And to reduce the Christian community to a place where we're friendly and polite and have a good time but never deal with each other's souls because we're not adequate to do that. Rachel and I have another son I've talked about, Kep, our son in Texas. Our other son, Kenny, lives in Denver. Kenny and Carolyn married to a wonderful girl named Carolyn. And um, Ken and I were chatting a little while ago about some things that he's going through, and there's some struggles. And I decided that, um, I said to him, I said, I have a proposal to make to you, and I want to hear what you think of it. We've agreed, a fellow that kind of serves as Kenny's big brother, a fellow named Bill, Myself, Bill, and Kenny, we're going to meet together every week indefinitely. And the whole reason for meeting is we're going to battle for each other's souls. We're not real sure what that means. But we're going to elder shepherd each other. We're going to get together and we're going to basically say that even though you have, or I have, or we have particular problems that, that maybe are diagnosable, and there's so many diagnoses now, almost everything's diagnosable, that maybe we actually could relate to each other in a way that could deal with some profound things. Maybe we could connect in a way which won't require a culturally sanctioned expert to get involved. That's an experiment we're trying. When community fails to provide true connection, we tend to turn to culturally sanctioned experts to solve our problems. And the tragedy of that is we lose the opportunity to experience what God has placed within Christian community, which has far more healing potential than any other resource. Conclusion number three. And I see some of you wanting to write these things down. This is cumbersome, so I'll say it to you several times if you want to get it down. My third conclusion, in which this whole new vision of believing that elder shepherding should occupy a central place in Christian community, my third conclusion is this, that healing community most profoundly develops healing community most profoundly develops when we realize that there is a power inside every believer. Healing community most profoundly develops when we realize that there is a power inside of every believer, placed there by the Spirit, that as it is released in connecting relationships, there's a power inside every believer, placed there by the Holy Spirit, that as it is released in connecting relationships, can strengthen the inclination to do good until that inclination is stronger than every inclination to do bad. Let me say it again. Healing community most profoundly develops when you realize that there is a power inside every believer placed there by the Holy Spirit that as it is released in connecting relationships can strengthen the inclination to do good until that inclination is stronger Than every inclination to do bad. Let me develop that for a few minutes and we'll call it a night. I'm going to develop this more in the next two talks, but it seems to me that we need to say that one of the implications of the new covenant is that God has put within us an appetite for Him that nothing can destroy. God is going to move in our hearts, Ezekiel 36 says, so that we're we're inclined, we're moved to keep his degrees. He talks about in Jeremiah 31, I'm going to take the laws, that were external, and I'm going to now write them on their minds, put them in their minds and write them on their hearts. The implication of all that, I understand to be, that there is now going to be some good urges within us to compete with the bad urges. Now we have the flesh-spirit struggle. And no matter what you've gone through, no matter what your struggles are, no matter what defensiveness you've learned because you've been so criticized, no matter how you keep away from relationships because you've been so burned, no matter what difficulties you've had in your life that have strengthened bad urges to protect yourself and play it safe and keep your distance and not give your heart and all those bad urges and maybe even worse ones going into immorality or pornography, things to get immediate relief from pain, whatever it might be, all those bad urges while they're there cannot destroy the good urges that the Spirit of God has put there. If that's true, then the job of the elder shepherd is not to figure out the background of all the bad urges so he can somehow therapize and fix them and weaken them. The job of the elder shepherd is to arouse the good urge that the Spirit of God has already placed there. That changes everything. It changes the work of psychotherapy. Two illustrations. A pastor friend of mine from the East Coast there's a man whose son got in some significant trouble and we were working together about some struggles with their boy and he was um, forcibly taken away to an adolescent um, rehab center. And it was a treatment center, a Christian center, where the requirement was that parents would come at least once a month for an all-day Saturday meeting. My pastor friend called me several months ago and said to me, Larry, i got to tell you that one of the most profound things that I've ever observed took place when I was at this treatment center last Saturday. There's 100 young people, ages maybe 16 till early 20s, who are living in this treatment center, all with a variety of problems. There's 100 residents, and there were roughly 200 parents there. 300 people in this room for an all-day Saturday meeting with an open microphone. People could say whatever they wanted. And in the middle of the day, uh, a young lady, maybe 19, 20 years old, walked up to the front and took the microphone and stood there trembling, just began to shake as she closed her eyes and just tried to compose herself so she could speak and what she finally said when she had her composure just with tears coming down her face and just trembling as she stood before the mic were these words she said no one knows this but for the last four years I've been a prostitute. Her mother and father were in the audience hearing that news for the very first time. You're the dad. What do you feel? Grace? Or do you rehearse your own failures? Do you start saying, what didn't I do? Do you have the memories of when you held your little little girl at age three and at seven and when she went on her first date and you were kind of nervous about it? And what this father did, my pastor friend told me, and I have permission to tell the story, what this father did is he got up out of his chair, 300 people in a room, walked to the front of the room, put his arm around his daughter and spoke to her. The microphone happened to be there, but he heard it. He was talking just to her. And the words he said were these. When I look at you, I see no prostitute. You've been washed. I see only my precious girl. She just fell into his arms, and her words were, i had forgotten the joy of being your little girl. The pastor's next sentence to me was, I have never in 20 years of ministry seen a healing moment like that in my church. Why not? To dispense grace, there has to be the absence of hypocrisy. We're not going to believe there's grace until at our worst, somebody jumps up and down and says, you're forgiven. Is there something beneath the horrible sin of prostitution? That is, this girl is a believer, cannot be destroyed by even that extent of sin that the father could actually arouse by calling it forth, is that what an elder shepherd does? Does he communicate a mood, does she communicate a mood of squealing with delight, not over the sin, and the old phrase has meaning, we are to hate the sin while we love the sinner. And somebody, I forget who it is, said that the real key to being a a spiritual director, an elder shepherd in our language, the real key is being able to catch the aroma of dignity beneath all the rubbish. Is there something that has survived all the assaults of life, all the betrayals, all the abuse, and all the sin of life, all the things that we've done that are just ugly and wrong? Is there something inside of us that really wants God, that the Spirit of God has given us an appetite for Him, and do you believe that about me? And when you see me at my worst, yes, do you? there's time for discipline, there's time for rebuke, there's time for exposure of sin, but is it all in a mood of, I'm doing it all so I can get to the good stuff? Is that humanism? Apart from redemption, the new covenant—that's exactly what it is. See, Carl Rogers in the field of psychology—he taught people are basically good, just kind of release the goodness. But he taught people were good without the atonement. Well, that isn't true. Without being saved, we're without hope, and we're sinful and deserving only of judgment, and all our righteousness was filthy rags. But once we're saved, is there anything that's different now? What's the new covenant mean? One last story friend of ours was with my wife and I some time ago, another couple. And the woman was telling us that she had been to see a therapist recently, a fellow that I actually trained, a good man, a very good man, somebody I'm very very impressed with, very talented as a counselor. And uh, she'd gone to see him because she had experienced some real problems in her life. She was beginning to hate herself as a wife and hating herself as a mother and feeling very inadequate all the time and just not feeling good about herself at all. And it was really causing difficulties in her family. And so she said, I need help. And she went to see a counselor, a good therapist. And the counselor. Um, maybe with some degree of wisdom, but I think there's some real danger in this, um, said to her, as I listen to you chat, it seems to me that you have all the earmarks of a history of sexual abuse. And they went looking for it and found it. And um, what he had said to her in the last session, before she was meeting with us on a social basis and getting into a rather heavy chat, she said, "Um, my therapist just told me that he feels like there's one more closet door that I have not yet opened because I haven't found the courage to yet, but my hand's on the door knob and if I can find the courage to turn it and open the door, it'll be the next step in my, in my, in my healing. And she said, well, will you and Rachel pray for me that I'll find the courage to open the door? And I said, no. She, she said, you won't pray for that? And I said, no. She said, why not? And I said, how many closet doors do you have to open? Is it right to deny that there's been abuse? No, I don't think so. There's a place for admitting whatever's true. Christians alone, Francis Schaeffer said, Christians alone can live without denial. Everybody else has to deny to make it. Christians don't have to because the bottom line is good. It's Christ. But I said to her, you know, how many more closet doors are there going to be when you open this one? How will you know there's not another one somewhere? And how will you know you haven't explored every nook and cranny of every door you've opened? How will you know that you haven't seen all the cobwebs? And will you spend your life obsessing about every detail Or is there something else? And she said, what are you talking about? And I said, look, you faced a lot of the pain. You faced a lot of the stuff. And and I applaud your courage and your integrity. And I believe that's necessary sometimes for healing. I'm not questioning any of that. But I would say, I'd rather see you open another door that I don't think you've ever talked about. He said, what are you talking about? I said, why don't you open the door to your living room? As opposed to the dark closet of more secrets. Is there not a place where Christ is alive in your soul? Is there not a place where out of the aliveness within your soul, you actually could move and speak? You see, is there something that survived all the junk? And is it our job as elder shepherds to look at people who are struggling and to say, wait a minute, whether it's psychological disorder or all those fancy terms, I don't know. But all I know is this is an image bearer who was built to be connected. And here's an image bearer who has fallen into sin. We've all, we're all born into sin. We're all sinful. But here's a person that's been forgiven by the blood of Christ. And Romans 15:7 says that I'm to accept this person as Christ accepts them. Well, how does Christ accept them? Maybe is there a mood of jumping up and down with the light? Why do you suppose when Stephen was being martyred and he looked up and had a vision of Jesus, what was Jesus' posture in that particular passage in Acts he was standing, running. why is that unusual? Because we're told that after he died for sins, he went back to the, the father and did what? He sat. Why was he standing? Well, this is a little fanciful, I'll grant you, but I wonder if he was getting ready to jump up and down. Here comes Steve. <laughs> My wife's dad died a couple of months ago at age 92, and we thought about the entrance that he received when he went home. How does Christ feel when one of his children come home? Their death is precious in the sight, and then their entrance into heaven is a cause for... Let's party. Let me hug you. You're my kid. Now, can we give people a taste of that now is the question. Is that the calling of an elder shepherd? Folks, as I look back on my life, Christian since I was eight years old, so 44 years of being a Christian, I look back on my life and I look at the things that have maybe been most influential and helpful in my life. Do you know, it's never somebody who had a clever interpretive insight to help me explain myself. You know what it's been? It's been a few people who have profoundly believed in me. It's been a few few, few people who've jumped up and down because I exist. It's been a few people who see the mess and say, Larry, you're a better man than that. It's been a few people who see me when I'm bad. And the number one person there is my wife who's seen me like nobody else ever has and still thinks I'm terrific. There you are. As I look back at the people that I've worked with as a professional therapist over the years, the, the few that maybe I've been able to help some, as I get feedback and I say to them, tell me what's been helpful. I've never yet heard anybody say, I can't ima- I don't understand how you were able to put that together. You were able to explain my symptoms in this particular way. No one's ever said that to me. The consistent feedback with the few that I've helped has been, I really felt like you delighted in me. When I walked into your office, there was a mood of, oh, good, as opposed to my 10 o'clock appointment. That's what's been powerful for me. And that's where I think I've been powerful. Folks, we're going to look in a little more detail, maybe a lot more detail, at what I think the calling of the elder shepherd is. But I believe there's a power inside each one of us that when released can make a more profound difference than any of us ever dreamed. And I believe it's as simple as can be. I believe there's some categories for thinking. I think there's some room for training in certain things. But I think the fundamental issue is what does it mean to move for other people with the energy of Christ and to know it powerfully works in us? Does that what's really going to change lives? That's our calling. And the older we are and the more we've experienced of Christ, maybe the more we could actually make that known to a few younger folks where they could be deeply encouraged because we jump up and down because they exist. Father, take these thoughts and move any direction you choose. I've got my agendas and I want to yield them all. Whatever you have in mind. Father, each one of us here wants to be shepherded by someone. There's nobody who's beyond the desire to have... Another person pull their head to their some of their chest. Father, we long for someone to love us like that and to care about us like that. And some of us are thinking right now of people who've done that. And we're just so grateful. And Lord, the prospect of doing that for a few others, the prospect of <clears throat> realizing in the core of the human soul there's such a terror that when exposed, we're going to be just despised. But then to realize that because of what Christ has done, we can be exposed and actually be accepted and loved because we're forgiven and believed in because the Spirit now has equipped us to become like Jesus and to be envisioned as to what could happen. Lord, release us to be the kind of men and women that our experiences of life have equipped us to become. Father, bless these days together in rich, rich ways. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To subscribe, visit largerstory.com.